Good morning and welcome to Class Day 2006. I'd like to extend a very warm uh, welcome to all the parents, all the faculty, administrators, and most especially, the great class of 2006 today. My name is Sean Callahan, and along with two less politically connected people, Lauren Bush and Harrison Frist, I'll be at the podium today taking you through the program. Um, no, seriously, thank you for coming out today. It's very easy in the midst of 20,000 alums running around here, mostly drunk, and also terrifying monsoon rains for the last four days to lose sight of what's going on. And it's nice to gather for one second to last time as a class. So I hope Class Day provides us all with a great opportunity to pause, to be together as a class, and to reflect on what we've done at Princeton. Class Day is a less formal event that allows the great class of 2006 a chance to reflect and celebrate before we walk out the Fitz Randolph gates tomorrow. And lastly, we'd like to thank President Clinton for making time to be here. Uh, we are excited and fortunate he was able to make it, and uh, it'll be good. <laughs> Before we start today, um, it's worth pausing for a moment to reflect on how fortunate we are to be here as a class. And we reflect and we pause especially to remember two of our classmates who cannot be here today who have passed. And we take a moment of silence now to remember the loss of Bradley Zangle and Minsley Davis. Thank you. And with that, I'll turn it over to the 19th president of this university, Ms. Shirley Tillman. Good morning. <laughs> Hi there. It's a great pleasure to greet all of you on class day, but it is a very special honor to welcome our keynote speaker, President Bill Clinton. <laughs> this is President Clinton's second appearance on behalf of Princeton over the last 10 days for which we are doubly grateful. He spoke with great eloquence and uncharacteristic brevity at a celebration for Toni Morrison at Lincoln Center, and we are delighted to welcome him back to our campus. But I should say in all candor that your arrival does not come a day too soon. I have only recently recovered from the disappointment of having your daughter, Chelsea, decide to go to Stanford. <laughs> despite, despite the incredibly interesting tour I gave her of the Department of Molecular Biology some years ago. <laughs> Unfortunately, the, the Office of Admission has a longer memory and has expunged my name permanently from their list of effective faculty recruiters. <laughs> oh well, perhaps I shouldn't have mentioned my plans for curbing grade inflation to her. <laughs> I thought you'd get that. Class day is your day, so I will be brief. 
As with every Princeton tradition, class day has changed with time. No longer, for example, do you mark your separation by smoking clay pipes and then hurling them against the cannon. <laughs> Some traditions deserve to die, <laughs> even at Princeton. Class day is a time for you to recall your four years together, the friendships you have formed, and the impressive things you have accomplished. In the fall of 2002, you were strangers, plucked from 48 states and 41 countries. And now, having endured the fun and the excitement of eight Dean's Dates, various versions of mystery meat in the college dining halls, and my favorite, the science requirement, you have become a class forever branded with a new last name, 06. It gives me great pleasure to invite your new class president, Dan Puglisi. Dan, if you'll come up. Where are you? There you are. <laughs> to accept the key to our campus. <laughs> Not yet. To be truly up to date, it should be a giant prox card. But be that as it may, this indeed is a very special key. For one thing, it will not be easy to misplace. And more importantly, it entitles all of you to play an active and I hope rewarding part in the life of our university community. Specifically, this key will enable you to visit our campus in person, online, or through the pages of the Princeton Alumni Weekly as often as you like. Join a global network of alumni associations, clubs, and committees wherever you may be, and enjoy 24-7 access to Princeton's endowment. <laughs> Unfortunately, the fine print stipulates that you can only make deposits. <laughs> but I think you will discover that the satisfaction to be found in supporting the students who come after you will more than make up for this caveat. Use this key often, and congratulations to you all. A year ago, Sean Harrison and I originally sat down to discuss who could potentially be our 2006 Class Day speaker. Although we were overwhelmed with possibilities and ideas, Clinton's name immediately came up. But then we thought Hillary would probably be too busy. <laughs> we... <laughs> We never could have imagined that President Bill Clinton would actually be here today as our Class Day speaker. Besides being the 42nd President of the United States, he is a Rhodes Scholar, accomplished jazz musician, and my grandfather's favorite new traveling buddy. Since being out of office, President Clinton continues to change the world through the Clinton Global Initiative and the Clinton Foundation, which seeks solutions to some of the world's most pressing issues. Because of President Clinton's charismatic personality, 
political legacy and humanitarian spirit, we are so honored to have him here today. Please help me to welcome President Bill Clinton. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Lauren, for the introduction. I, I thought Hillary was too busy to be here today, too. She told me she had to go back to the Senate, and then I see Senator Frist here. Putting parenthood ahead of the public trust. <laughs> but I think she still was right. And I think he's right to be here. I thank you, Lauren and Harrison and Sean. Thank you all for inviting me to speak here, President Tillman. Thank you for your remarks and your leadership. Don't feel bad about not being able to persuade Chelsea to come here. I haven't been able to persuade her I was right about anything in several years. She was handicapped by not choosing Princeton, but I think she's getting over it day by day. <laughs> I am delighted to be back here. I was uh, honored to speak at the commencement in 1996, which was the 250th anniversary of Princeton. The students may know that the President of the United States only gets invited to speak to the Princeton commencement once every 50 years. So Harry Truman, Grover Cleveland, and I are the last three to do it. I just got wildly lucky, and I'm honored to be back again with so many of you. This great institution has meant a lot to our nation and the world for a long time now. And my fleeting associations with it have meant a great deal to me. I was honored, uh, as the President said, to speak at the retirement ceremony for my friend Tony Morrison the other day. Honored that uh, you're about to give an honorary degree to my friend Seamus Heaney, who has inspired a lot of the work and, and the words that I have uttered over the years. I want to talk to you about what your graduation means to you. You leave here with knowledge, a honed capacity for lifetime learning, and frankly, your contacts with each other, which together give you an enormous amount of personal power in an interdependent world. How will you use it? It was in 1896 that Princeton first adopted the unofficial motto, Princeton in the Nation's Service. It was the title of the keynote speech given by the then member of your faculty, Professor Woodrow Wilson, who, as you all know, later went on to be President of Princeton, Governor of New Jersey, and President of the United States. A hundred years later, when I spoke here in 1996, on the school's 250th anniversary, Princeton's motto was expanded to include 
and in the service of all nations. So now it is Princeton in the nation's service and in the service of all nations. In recognition of the interdependent world in which all future graduates would live. Ten years ago, I identified with that because I thought it was my mission to build the positive and reduce the negative forces of interdependence at home and around the world. Today, I want you to think about that all over again. Princeton has given you personal power, the power of the mind, the power of the imagination, the power of what you know and what you can learn, the power of how to work with the people you know and how to make new friends and new alliances. Students from all over America and more than 40 other nations. How will you be of service to your nation and all the world? I believe in order to decide the answer to that question, you have to be able to ask and answer for yourselves four simple questions. One, what is the nature fundamentally of the 21st century world? Two, how would you like to change it? How would you like to leave it for your children and grandchildren? Three, what must be done to affect those changes? And four, who's supposed to do it? And especially, what are you going to do? I will give you my answers today. They don't have to be yours. I'm not so far removed from politics that I don't wish you would all agree with me. But the important thing is not that you agree with me, but that you have an answer. If you cannot ask yourselves an answer, what is the nature of the 21st century world? What do you wish it were like? What do we have to do to make it that way? And what can you do? If you can't do that, then every night when you watch the evening news for the rest of your lives or in the morning when you pick up the newspaper, it will look like the political equivalent of chaos theory and physics. You need a, a framework to view the world and organize your lives and relate your private life to your life as a citizen, wherever you are from, whatever your politics. So I will give you my answers and you think about yours. For me, the fundamental nature of the 21st century world is its interdependence, not globalization, which more or less connotes economics and international economic transactions, but far more, including information technology, widespread travel, mass media and culture, and increasing diversity within virtually every successful society on Earth. It also means interdependence, shared vulnerabilities. We share vulnerability to terror, to weapons of mass destruction, to the spread of infectious disease. Have you noticed changes in the news since avian influenza became a threat? You can turn on the evening news in the United States and find out 
that some chicken in Romania has been found with avian influenza, and you know how many square kilometers in Romania every last chicken was killed in. And you may smile about it, but it's a good thing. It's a good thing. It gives us a chance to avoid repeating the devastation of the Spanish influenza that in three great ways between 1918 and 1920 killed somewhere between 25 and 50 million people in the world. We are bound by our common vulnerability to these kinds of things. And of course, we also share a vulnerability, potentially the most profound of all, the climate change and to the possibility of massive energy shortages much sooner than most people believe. With interdependence, you have positive and negative aspects. Sometimes on an issue, you have both. If you look around the Princeton class, it's much more diverse than it would have been 30 years ago. You are the best embodiment of positive interdependence I can imagine. Think how much more interesting you are than the Princeton graduating class of 1906. <laughs> Bunch of boring white guys like me. <laughs> Just think about it. But interdependence can also be negative. Our shared vulnerability to terror. When I was president, we had eight years of progress toward peace in the Middle East, and then the whole thing came apart, and we had four years of the Second Intifada, and three times as many Israelis and Palestinians were killed in those four years as in the previous eight, but they were no less interdependent. They just went from positive to negative interdependence. Sometimes you have both elements at once. This, one of the reasons that this immigration debate in America is so contentious now and so elusive, and I believe so completely without a satisfactory solution, is that the elements of positive and negative interdependence are so mixed in it. No one can doubt that we are a nation of immigrants and that it has made us so much better, so much more interesting, and so much more a beacon of hope to people throughout the world. As some of your finest graduates in this class demonstrate. And yet, if we have a system of open borders, no one can doubt that with a long border across our Canadian line and a long border across the Rio Grande River, it makes us somewhat more vulnerable to terror, so we have to have some better control of our borders. No one can doubt that the vast majority of the immigrants inside this country, including those that are undocumented and made a positive contribution, worked hard and paid taxes, but no one can question that if you have a legal system, you have to find some way not to punish those who patiently wait in line and follow the law in favor of those who found another way to get here. It's a, a complicated, difficult problem. I mentioned it today not to resolve it, but to say it is a perfect example of the nature of global interdependence having both positive and negative elements. That's why I'm not going to be too political today. That's why I sort of favor what the president tried to do because I thought we were trying to get the best of both worlds and there is no perfect solution. 
the interdependent world we live in is good for you by definition. You're here. You're graduating. One of the finest institutions in the world. But it is inherently unstable and unequal. Half the world's people live on less than $2 a day. A billion on less than a dollar a day. A billion people never get a clean glass of water. Two and a half billion people have no access to sanitation. One in four of all deaths this year will come from AIDS, TB, malaria, and infections from dirty water, principally cholera and diarrhea, and 80% of the people in the last category will be under five years of age. And nearly nobody in America will die of any of those things. So the current condition, while making life more interesting for you, and allowing you to leave this great institution with resources of personal power unknown to all but a tiny fraction of people who have ever lived on this planet is unequal and unsustainable. So that's my answer to question one, fundamental nature of the modern world. Question two, what would I like the world to look like for my children and grandchildren and yours? I would like us to move from unstable, unequal interdependence to more integrated communities, locally, nationally, and globally. What is the definition of any successful integrated community? A university, a city, a business, a civic club, a family. They all have three things in common. Shared opportunities and benefits, shared responsibilities, and shared values. A sense that membership means something that is fundamentally fair and just and hopeful. Now, to a realist hearing me say this, someone would say, I can't believe that guy was ever president. How could you be so naive as to think, with all the grief going on in the world today, people could ever have a set of shared values? I think they could if they were general and embracing, and they worked everywhere. Every person deserves a chance. Every person has a responsible role to play. Competition is good, but cooperation often works better. Our differences are important. They make life more interesting. They aid the, aid the search for truth. But our common humanity matters more. Those simple values. They all rest, interestingly enough, on a fundamental notion about the nature of truth, religious truth, philosophical truth. And that is this. No matter what your faith, if you have any, you must believe there is a truth. But there's a very different impact to believing in the existence of truth, capital T, and the ability of any person to be in full possession of that absolute truth, much less to turn it into a political program, which is absolutely true, that if you reject, you don't even deserve to live. That is, after all, at the root of a lot of fundamentalist terror. Here's the truth, I have it. Here's the necessary political program that follows from it. And if you don't buy it, you're less human than I am and your life matters less. 
If people will simply reject that, the idea, not that there is no truth, but that in this fleeting life, all of us are imperfect enough to be unable to fully possess it, much less turn it into a political program that's fully true, then we can find, we can find integrated communities of shared opportunities, shared responsibilities, and shared values. Question three, so what are we supposed to do? I think there are four things we have to do. One, we have to find a way to be safe, a security system that deals with terror and weapons of mass destruction, the killing of innocents, the threat of disease, the threat of climate change. Two, since in an interdependent world you cannot ever kill, jail, or occupy all your enemies, we have to have a system for more friends and fewer enemies, to build more partners and fewer terrorists. That's where politics comes in, honorable compromise. And we know how to do this. If we, for example, make a serious effort, as the industrialized countries of the world have committed to do now, as of last year, to get rid of extreme poverty in the world over the next 10 years, to put 130 million kids in school who never go to school, to reverse the tide, the killing tide of AIDS, TB, malaria, and other infectious diseases, we would make a world of more partners and fewer terrorists. I'll give you just one example. There is one Muslim country in the world where the approval of the United States has dramatically increased since the events in Iraq. One. You know which one it is? The biggest, Indonesia. I'll never forget when the president asked his father and me to go to uh, Indonesia and India and Sri Lanka and the Maldives after the tsunami and to raise money and to, to find ways to help people overcome the difficulties that that natural tragedy caused. When we came back to make our report at the White House, one of the career public servants of the United States for, in the foreign aid program shoved a pole in my hand right before we walked in the Oval Office. I'll never forget this. Comparing attitudes of the United States before the tsunami and after. Before the tsunami, but after the Iraq action, only 30% of the Indonesians had a favorable opinion of America. After the tsunami, 58 before the tsunami, 58% of the people in Indonesia had a favorable opinion of Mr. Bin Laden. After the tsunami, 30. Now, he did not do anything to them after the tsunami, nor did he do anything for them. And in that stunning moment when people had lost their homes, their livelihoods, in many cases, all their family members, I went through a refugee camp in Indonesia led by the elected leader of the survivors and his wife and his beautiful son. And when I commented on how beautiful the son was, my interpreter said, yes, he's a beautiful boy. And before the tsunami, he had nine brothers and sisters, and they're all gone. And when you're down like that and you have nothing but your fundamental humanity to fall back on, then people who relate to you on that level are more important than people who just preach politics at you. 
So Americans, the military dropped food, not bombs. The civilian workers worked there. Non-religious and religious non-governmental organizations went there and worked. Even businesses just spontaneously picked up roots and moved over to Indonesia and other countries and set up clean water purification operations. It was the most amazing thing. And they knew it. And all of a sudden, all of our religious and political and geographic and linguistic and all of our other differences amounted to nothing because we were in some common human endeavor. We have to make more partners and fewer terrorists because we can't kill, jail, or occupy all our enemies. The third thing we have to do is to find organized way to cooperate more. And uh, I believe, for example, that since we can't solve the climate change problem on our own, we'll have to, and since the Kyoto Accord doesn't have broad the support of all the major countries in the world now, in the United States and India and China, the three biggest emitters of greenhouse gases are not in it, we need a new agreement. We've got to find institutional ways to cooperate because the more you work together within an organization, the harder it is to do something that's disruptive of the whole. And the fourth thing that we have to do is what I would call home improvement. Sounds like a cable TV show. But it's difficult if you're from a wealthy country like America to maintain the support necessary for America to do what should be done on all these other things around the world unless we're getting better here at home. And if you're in a developing country, it's difficult to benefit from any aid or investment which might come to you unless your governance is getting better within your own country. Home improvement is important. In America, that means dealing with some of our dysfunctional systems. We can't keep spending 16% of our income on health care while nobody else spends more than 11, while we insure 84% and everybody else insures 100, and we're ranked 37th in the world in health care quality. And we have $1,500 a car in health insurance if it's a General Motors car and 110 if it's a Toyota. So we have to find ways to work together to put aside all of our differences. I'm very grateful that Senator Frist and my wife have worked together to try to give electronic uh, records uh, systematically to all people in America for health records. If we did it, we could save $100 billion a year in administrative costs and unnecessary medical procedures. But we have a dysfunctional energy system. We can't keep discharging 25% of the world's greenhouse gases with 4% of the world's population and asking the Chinese and the Indians who are growing behind us to take a different path to growth when we won't set an example. And if we went to a clean energy future, a serious clean energy future, it would create new jobs that pay a lot of money. It would help reduce inequality in America. It would reduce the threat to our national security of depending on oil from unstable countries and the prospect some experts believe that there will effectively be no affordable oil for anybody to buy within 40 years. And it would enable us to deal with the responsibilities that we have to avoid the worst, most calamitous consequences of climate change. Home improvement is important. So that's my answer. My answer is, how do we get from here to there? With a security system, a system for more partners and fewer terrorists, more institutional cooperation, and home improvement. The fourth and most important question, what can you do about it? 
Well, the government has a role to play in all these areas, but let's just posit for a moment that most of the security work and the development of international cooperation will be done by governments. That leaves building a world with more partners and fewer terrorists and home improvement, where private citizens can do enormous public good. Now, going all the way back to the time when Princeton was founded, America has had a tradition of private citizens doing public good. Benjamin Franklin organized the first volunteer fire department in America before the Constitution was ratified. When Alexis de Tocqueville came here in 1835 from France, he noted that Americans had this remarkable propensity just to get together and solve problems and not wait for the government to do everything for them. This is a big part of our history. But in the last 10 years, three things have conspired to give you and your classmates and your contemporaries more power as private citizens to do public good than any group of people in all of history. One, for the first time in history, more people live under democracies than ever before. It means that the leaders are more subject to public opinion. And even non-democratic countries cannot resist public opinion in a mass media culture. Two, the rise of the Internet has given ordinary people unprecedented power to change the course of events if they all agree on the same thing at the same time. When the tsunami hit South Asia, 30% of America's households gave money to relief over half over the Internet. And Great Britain and the Netherlands per capita gave even more because of the Internet. When the President asked his father and me to go raise money for Katrina and try to set up some projects to help people in the Gulf Coast area, about a year ago, this August, the next month I went with my wife to the New York State Fair. It's my only obligatory trip as a Senate spouse. <laughs> I mean, after all, what good is a guy from Arkansas to a senator from New York? except at the State Fair, <laughs> where I've got old cowboy boots and, you know, belts with rodeo buckles, 901 of a cow from another. I'm handy at the State Fair. So I was up there walking my nephew down the midway past all those little boots. You know, you see at a fair where you throw balls at targets and try to win stuffed animals and things like that. So this lady comes running out from behind one of the boots in a little khaki shirt. And she stuffs 50 bucks in my hand in cash. She says, this is for the Bush-Clinton-Katrina Fund. I am sorry to give you this money in cash, but as you can see, I'm working, so I don't have time to send it over the net. Now, this lady's not a Princeton graduate or a dot-com millionaire. How much money can she make working at a fair booth, right, in Syracuse, New York? And already her preferred way of giving is over the Internet. In 2004, for the first time in our political history, small contributions to both the Republican and Democratic parties in the aggregate were bigger than large ones because of the Internet. Which means that if you have a whole bunch of people who agree at the same time that something is important and should be changed, you can change the world. And the third thing that's happened is the rise to an unprecedented extent of the non-governmental 
organization in poor and wealthy countries alike. There were none of these in Russia when I became president. Today there are 63,000. There were none in China when I became president. Today there are 265,000 that are registered and probably twice that many who are, which aren't. All over the world, in all kinds of countries, there are people organizing and banding together as private citizens to do public good. And it gives you the power to change the world in the areas I mentioned, making your own country better and making a world with more partners and fewer adversaries. I can't tell you what you should do. I can only tell you that if you have power, you have a responsibility to use it, and you cannot walk away from it. And since you live in an interdependent world, you can't get away from its adverse consequences. You can only try to minimize them, ultimately erase them, and maximize the potential before you. I don't want to see the future of your children and grandchildren compromised because we fail to have the right security systems, because we fail to do something about climate change and the drying up of energy supplies, because we fail to reach across the religious and cultural divides of this world, because we fail to do something about the fact that half the world's people are living on less than $2 a day when most of the rest of us can make money beyond our wildest dreams. And the governments of the world will have to do some of this, but people can do a lot of it. Private citizens, not only of the United States, but of any country in the world, doing public good. It is no accident that Time magazine named Bono and Bill and Melinda Gates the people of the year last year. Why? They never held any political office. They have done enormous public good. Last year or a year before last, a remarkable woman from Kenya, Wangari Matai, won the Nobel Prize for her work in environmentalism in her country as a way of lifting people out of poverty and preserving the integrity of her nation. Private people doing public good. I think it's important for you to think about that. Princeton told you to be in the service of the nation and the service of all nations. Ironically, you have more power to do that than any previous class of graduates. Politics is still important. Government's still important. It's still important that we have our differences and we debate them. But it is easier for us to hear each other and debate and to understand what our honest differences are when we're finding common ground where it exists. I have loved this work I've done with former President Bush. He hadn't asked me to change his politics. I hadn't asked him to change mine. Or he hadn't asked me to change mine. We still have the differences we had before we started, but we also know where the common ground is. And as you build bonds of personal affection and mutual respect across lines that divide you, then it becomes harder for people to become so estranged that they can't even hear each other anymore. And the same rules would apply in the areas where we're trying to diminish terror, we're trying to diminish profound alienation, because we're looking for the common ground where we can find it. So I ask you to think about that. You don't have to agree with my answers, but you need an answer. What do you think the nature of the modern world is? 
What do you want it to be like when you leave it to your children and grandchildren? What do we have to do to get there? And what are you going to do about it? You have an education that has given you unprecedented personal power. And you live in a time which has given you unprecedented personal power. That means you've got a lot of responsibility. It also means if you do it right, you'll live in the most exciting, interesting time in all human history. It's yours to make, and I hope you will. Good luck, and God bless you all. I'd like to thank President Clinton one last time for joining us here on Class Day. And before we move forward with the program, I'd like to officially induct President Clinton into the great class of 2006. As part of your honorary membership, you will receive a 2006 class jacket. You'll receive a certificate that's been signed by all the senior class officers and a copy of the 2006 Nassau Herald. Thank you very much. Now I'd like to introduce an individual who throughout our time here at Princeton has been a tremendous leader, our class president, Chris Lloyd. Good morning, members of the class of 2006 and guests. It's an incredible honor to stand here in front of all of you this morning. You know, when they told me I had to send a message to the class, my first instinct was a stylish email with links and graphics. <laughs> but they said it had to be a speech, so here I am. Also, it was admittedly a little bit nerve-wracking to find out just a few days ago that I would be speaking directly after President Clinton. <laughs> Somehow, class of 2006 president seems to lose its luster next to 42nd President of the United States of America. For instance, during his two terms in office, Clinton sought to reform health care and education. During my terms in office, I sought to add more chicken fingers to study breaks and make my class emails play music. Clinton radically reformed the welfare system. I radically reformed the distribution of class hoodies. Clinton's wife is the junior senator from New York. I'm single and have a personal MySpace.com that no one really replies to. <laughs> Call me. Instead of giving the same tired and trite speech reflecting back on our memories at Princeton, I thought I'd do something a little bit more useful with the four minutes I've been allotted. You see... <laughs> You see, my fellow classmates, we still have 24 hours until we're officially undergraduates no more. 24 hours to do the things that our classes, JPs, and theses pulled us away from these past four years. 
So I thought I'd consult with my friends and present a list of the 24 things we should do in the last 24 hours at Princeton. But since I only have about three and a half minutes left, we'll have to make do with 10. Number one. Call up your friends in the class of 2006 at Yale and start laughing and reminiscing about how great it was to hear David Sedaris and Bill Clinton talk to you during baccalaureate and class day. <laughs> then be sure to ask them if their class day speaker, Anderson Cooper, was as moving as he is on CNN's Anderson Cooper 360. <laughs> Number two. Join Facebook.com. I would venture to say that no other Princeton class has every single class member on the Facebook. We'd already accomplished this goal, but we're still waiting for Matt Becker, Lily Samet, Jason Gherkin, and Lauren Bush to join. I'm going to be in the Frisk Campus Center after the ceremony's done. I'll walk you through the process so you can stay in touch and look at mildly embarrassing photos of me and my friends doing inappropriate things. Number three, if you find that you have questions about prom or commencement after class is over, please email our new alumni president, Dan Puglisi. <laughs> I'm taking the next 24 hours off. He just found that out with the rest of you. Thanks, Dan. Now let me move to a few more serious suggestions. Number four, pop your collar. I won't explain that one. Uh, number five, for all of you on the Facebook.com with hundreds of friends that you probably rarely talk to in real life, during these last 24 hours, take time to reconnect with them. Our Princeton experience will forever be remembered by the relationships we formed while we were here and the memories we've created together. Take time to appreciate the richness of diversity that is our class. Let's leave our disagreements in the past so that tomorrow we can walk out of Fitz Randolph Gate united as we begin the next phase of our lives. Six, email your favorite professors you've had at Princeton and tell them how significant working with them was during your four years here. Princeton means many different things to many different people, but there's one activity that is more important than all else, academics. Let your favorite professors know how valuable their personal commitment was to you during these last four years. Number seven, go exploring. In the hurriedness of campus life during our time here, it was easy to be confined to the same areas of campus. But before you go, be sure to discover the intimate surroundings of Lake Carnegie, the majestic corners of the Graduate College, or the serene landscape of the battlefield. That was serious, guys. <laughs> Number eight, thank your parents. Four years and a hundred... Four years and $160,000 later, they certainly deserve it. They nervously drove away after they dropped us off here in 2002, and now they sit around us incredibly proud of how we've grown and what we've accomplished while we were here. Number nine, donate money to Princeton. You know, some <laughs> you know sometimes as I roam around our beautiful campus, I get concerned for Princeton, that it won't have the money it needs to continue to be the best institution in America. Okay, that was a bold-faced lie. Princeton will continue to have a lot of money, 
but but only if generous Princetonians like us continue to want Princeton to remain the best university in the world. (laughs) 10, celebrate. We've done it. Let's join together, celebrate, and make the most of our last 24 hours as Princeton undergraduates. When we exit Fitz Randolph Gate tomorrow, our Princeton experience, of course, won't end. We'll join an army of the most active alumni on the planet. It's time to tackle new challenges. It's time to build new bridges. For our class, the energy is there. A new day is starting. Let Princeton forever remember that 2006 is truly the best class, best year. Thank you very much. I'd now like to welcome to the stage the other senior class officers, Dan Puglisi, Misha Renda, Amanda Chi, and Gretchen Tonneson. Good morning. When the four of us were asked to prepare a class history, we couldn't understand why they asked us of all people because none of us are history majors. Between this and the past few nights of reunion's revelry, please forgive us us, if our memories of the details are a little hazy. Months after Dean Fred recruited us individually with his famous yes letters, inviting us to become members of the great class of 2006, we arrived on campus. As I recall, We immediately knew our way around, were never intimidated by upperclassmen or embarrassed by the typical freshman ignorance. We arrived with the knowledge that Princeton had grabbed the top spot in the national college rankings for a third consecutive year. And had US News and World Report been published in 1746, we're confident this would have been its 260th consecutive year. In August 2002, many of us began our Princeton experiences with outdoor or community action. From there, we found our places within the Princeton community and were able to experience everything that this university has to offer. We engaged in debates on the NCAA moratorium and we packed into Dillon Gym to watch the Goo Goo Dolls and Third Eye Blind. We soon discovered that Dean Fred decided to retire from his post after realizing that he would never assemble a class as great as ours (laughs) and after his fears were confirmed upon admitting the class of 2007. Thus as the year ended and we became sophomores, we celebrated his career and thanked him for his service to the university. Sophomore year was easily tackled by our gifted class, though filled with what some other classes might consider to be difficult choices like our majors and our eating clubs. Each and every one of us knew exactly what we wanted to study and we never had to drop courses or switch majors. As we breezed on through, the most exciting development was the release of the Facebook.com which finally allowed us to stalk anyone in the class and to showcase our clever choices of our favorite movies for those who wish to stalk us. (laughs) Throughout the year, we rocked out to such oldies as George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic and newbies like Maroon 5. Whatever happened to them? (laughs) After seeing the class of 2006 easily triumph for two years, 
The university decided to impose great deflation and quintile ranking so as to attempt to throw a stumbling block in the way of our meteoric success. Of course, we were concerned that many of our A++ would now simply be A+. But at least grad schools and employers would be notified of the new grading policy. We then showcased our academic progress in our junior independent work, all of which were published in the major journals of our respective disciplines. <laughs> with the onset of election season, junior year also provided many with exciting opportunities to become politically active or to take advantage of the free food provided by those who had become politically active. <laughs> Campus groups, including the College Republicans, the College Democrats, and the nonpartisan P-Votes encouraged widespread political involvement in pizza consumption. Our senior year started off with a lawn parties concert featuring Jurassic Five, which was just one of many campus efforts to raise money for the victims of Hurricane Katrina. Weeks later, we found ourselves with our faces painted orange and black, cheering on the football team as they attempted to take down Yale for a share of the Ivy League title. The victory was the most stunning we'd seen in our four years. <laughs> and the ensuing bonfire was spectacular. <laughs> Starting in the late fall, the majority of our class began the annual thesis hibernation in the depths of Firestone. Obviously, nothing fun happened on campus during this time because we weren't around. <laughs> Occasionally, we emerged for pub nights at the Annex, may it rest in peace, and Winberries, which represented both the first and last times that the university would pick up our class's bar tab. <laughs> Before we knew it, the theses were turned in, and 06 celebrated its resurrected livelihood with senior week, house parties, and most recently, reunions. Last night at the Step Sing, we set the world record for the most people singing don't stop believing at the same time. And now Princeton's class of 2006 is gathered here for class day. After all of his begging to meet the brightest minds this world has ever seen, we could hardly refuse to allow President Clinton to speak to us. <laughs> Tomorrow we will go off into the world and immediately make our presence felt much as it was when we first walked through Fitz Randolph Gates. Thank you. That I'd like to introduce Dean of Undergraduate Students Kathleen Dignan. It is customary during class day festivities to acknowledge the winner of the Moses Taylor Pine Prize awarded annually to that member of the senior class who has most clearly manifested scholarship strength of character, and effective leadership and support for Princeton University. The Pine Prize, which is the highest honor the university confers upon an undergraduate, was presented this year in February at Alumni Day to James Williams and Jeremy Golubkow Taglossi. James and Jeremy, would you please stand so that we can recognize your achievements? Macy Dulles Class of 51 Service Award. An alumnus of the Class of 1951, 
generously endowed this award to honor his classmate, Alan Macy Dulles, who, seriously injured in the Korean War, set an example of selflessness and courage that are the spirit of this prize. The official description of the award is as follows. Presented each year to the senior whose activity while a Princeton student best represents or exemplifies Princeton in the nation's service and in the service of all nations. The Alan Macy Dulles 51 Award is presented this year to David Mann Podraski. David is an economics major from Yardley, Pennsylvania. He is as devoted to Princeton as an undergraduate can be. Early in his Princeton career, he was determined to share his enthusiasm for this place by becoming an Orange Key tour guide. He has become one of Orange Key's best guides, having conducted over 120 tours. David has also worked hard to improve accessibility on our campus for mobility-impaired students. He has compiled data, served on panels, and made presentations to the Council of the Princeton University community and to various administrators. David has traveled to hospitals and homes in order to visit other young people and make himself available to those who have suffered spinal cord injuries, providing practical suggestions, advice, and hope. David is very active in his church. He has served as a math tutor for children and as an assistant packmaster of a Boy Scout troop. We wish David all the best next year when he begins his Ph.D. program in economics at the University of Pennsylvania. Please join me in congratulating David Mann-Pedrell. Frederick Douglass Service Award, established in 1969 by the Association of Black Collegians, is awarded annually to a senior who has exhibited courage, leadership, intellectual achievement, and a willingness to contribute unselfishly towards a deeper understanding of the experiences of racial minorities, and, in, and who, in so doing, reflects the tradition of service embodied in a Princeton education. This year, the winner of the Frederick Douglass Award is Juan Gonzalez. A politics major from Montebello, California, Juan has been extremely influential as a leader in the Latino community at Princeton but has also demonstrated a capacity to reach out to others around controversial issues in order to further mutual understanding and resolve tensions. Juan has promoted political awareness of issues relevant to the Latino community on campus and in our surrounding community. He has worked closely with the migrant worker population in Princeton as a volunteer through St. Paul's Church, and he has co-chaired the Latino Heritage Month Committee planning for speakers, compiling budgets, publicizing events, 
and effectively leading representatives of a number of different cultural groups in a month of programming. He has been president of the Chicano Caucus and president and business manager of Ballet Folklorico. Juan has reached out to support the LGBT community as a peer educator and was selected as a panelist at Reflections on Diversity during orientation. He is very attuned to the issues of race and class at Princeton and has worked hard to make our campus a welcoming and supportive environment. Congratulations, Juan. Harold Willis Dodds Award is an annual award established in 1957 to be given to the senior who best embodies the high example set by Harold Willis Dodds during his tenure as 15th president of Princeton University, particularly in the qualities of clear thinking, moral courage, a patient and judicious regard for the opinion of others, and a thoroughgoing devotion to the welfare of the university and to the life of the mind. This year's winner of the Harold Willis Dodds Award is Claire Wu. Claire is a chemical engineering ma major hailing from Hong Kong. Those who know her are effusive about her intellect and her character. Her advisor has characterized her research as spectacular and remarks that he encounters people of her caliber only once every decade. Her academic record is simply outstanding, as evidenced by her early election to Phi Beta Kappa last fall. She has demonstrated courage and leadership in many ways. During Claire's four years at Princeton, she has been a mainstay of the LGBT community, and her commitment to activism has been unwavering. She has served for three years as an officer in the Pride Alliance, transforming and invigorating programming, and has demonstrated outstanding leadership as an LGBT peer educator. Many of you will remember that she initiated the Gay Fine By Me t-shirt campaign, and most recently, effectively campaigned for the inclusion of gender identity in the university's non-discrimination statement. In addition to her work with the LGBT community, Claire has been active throughout her time at Princeton in Tiger Dance, Kung Fu, the Hong Kong Student Association, the Chinese Student Association, Students for Progressive Education and Action, and the Chapel Choir. She is a quiet, committed leader who has worked tenaciously, yet always respectfully, for the principles she holds dear. Please join me in congratulating Claire Wu. The next two awards are voted by members of the senior class. The 1901 medal is awarded to the senior who in the judgment of the student's classmates has done the most for Princeton. Founded in 1920 by the class of 1901, 
which in 1952 endowed it in perpetuity and stipulated that thereafter the medal be awarded in memory of its classmate, Walter E. Hope, who originated the prize. This year, the winner of the 1901 medal is Leslie Bernard Joseph. Leslie is a native of Bayshore, New York, has majored in politics, and will also receive a certificate in African American Studies. During his four years, Leslie has made numerous contributions to this university. He has been president of the Black Student Union and of the Black Men's Awareness Group. He has served for two years as an RCA in Wilson College and has partic participated in SIMFO, the Black Arts Company, and the Princeton Justice Project. But perhaps the role for which he is most well known is that of president of the undergraduate student government. Leslie was a careful steward of that organization and its resources. While his accomplishments in that role were many, arguably the most noteworthy is his founding of PINS, Princeton in the Nation's Service, a month-long initiative designed to promote service and encourage the entire university community to reinvigorate its commitment to the local community just beyond our gates. In his role as USG president, Leslie worked tirelessly to open dialogue among and between many campus groups and to forge strong relationships with campus offices and departments. He listened to your suggestions, effectively cultivated support, and built coalitions among campus constituencies. Thank you, Leslie, for all you have done for Princeton, and congratulations. The W. Sanderson Detweiler 1903 Prize is a silver bowl awarded annually to the senior who in the judgment of the student's classmates has done the most for Princeton, or has done most for the class, excuse me. Founded in 1949 in memory of W. Sanderson Detweiler, class of 1902, by his sister, Mrs. William Jennings Price. This year, the winner of the W. Sanderson Detweiler Prize is Christopher Lloyd. Big surprise, huh? <laughs> Hailing from Silver Spring, Maryland, Chris majored in history and has earned a certificate in Spanish. He has been a member of the executive committee of the Princeton University Alumni Council, a member of the Princeton Justice Project, and a college program advisor in Wilson College. Indeed, Chris has left his mark on Princeton in a variety of ways, but most notably as president of the great class of 2006 for the past three years. He founded and ran PrincetonClassGear.com, an online resource to expedite the ordering and distribution of that all-important 2006 apparel. He has led a loyal corps of your class officers who have worked with him for three years in planning and implementing an extraordinary number of class activities, including parties, trips to Broadway shows, formals, hub nights, and senior week. 
He has ably overseen many of the spectacular events you have enjoyed this week and will continue to enjoy for the next 24 hours. In addition to serving as your class president for three years, Chris has represented your class on the Honor Committee and has served this year as its chair. He has brought thoughtful and judicious sensibilities to hearings and has led that committee in a careful review of its procedures. Thank you, Chris, for all of your hard work, your leadership, and all you have contributed to your class and this university. Congratulations and best wishes. Now for our first student address given by Ben Fass. Ben is an English major who has participated in Quipfire and the Triangle Club while at Princeton. Thanks, Warren. So, um, wow. <laughs> Sorry. After the uh, step sing last night, I went back to my room and I watched Batman Begins on DVD. I don't know how many of you guys have seen it, but apparently Batman went to Princeton. Which, um, which leads me to the question, uh, how come Batman wasn't our class day speaker? But then I, then I got to thinking. Bill Clinton, Batman. Clinton, Batman. One of them fights crime, one of them fights poverty. One lives in a bat cave. The other used to have a cave-like structure he could hide in in case of nuclear annihilation. The similarities don't stop there. One's a millionaire bachelor. The other is the 42nd president of the United States and a former Rhodes Scholar. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen of the class of 2006, cherished family members, I submit to you a theory. Bill Clinton is Batman. <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting, I'm getting a phone call. Hey, what's up, man? No, I'm doing the class day speech. Oh, yeah, no, I mentioned you're a Rhodes Scholar, Bill. What is that? You went to, you went to Yale? Oh, well, that kind of invalidates my theory, Mr. President. No, thanks a lot, Mr. President. Or should I call you Batman? No, uh, he hung up on me. Oh, well. When I was a boy, I think like many young boys, I had the dream of having superpowers. I thought one day I would just wake up in bed and I could see through walls or run very quickly or have claws explode out of my wrists. <laughs> Knuckles. <laughs> I wanted to be special, unique, important. When there was trouble, I'd help. Who do the police call when there's a hostage situation? Ben Fast. Who does the army turn to when aliens invade the planet Earth? Ben Fast. <laughs> Who does the president call at the bleakest hour? President Bush, he calls Karl Rove. And then, Ben Fast. <laughs> I tried everything to get super. I was x-rayed 15 times at my local hospital, hope of causing some type of genetic mutation. I actually went on Fear Factor and got in a glass box with 500 spiders and invited them to bite me. I, uh, I purchased some pet turtles and doused myself in mutagen. 
Or maybe that was just green Gatorade, I'm not sure. But then something happened at Princeton when I got here. Maybe it was that experiment I volunteered for at the plasma physics lab, or maybe it was just the dining hall food. But I started to feel changes, growth, experience, severe flatulence. <laughs> Suddenly, I was assigned training, field training, outdoor action. What happens when a superhero can't make it to the lavatory? He trowels. Being able to poop in the woods, that's called a survival skill. <laughs> and superheroes need writing seminars. Think about it. Every superhero needs a clear mission statement or thesis. They can't just be wandering around all willy-nilly without a main idea and facts to support it. <laughs> and what about when a superhero doesn't have a sidekick to rely on, when he has to fight solo? He needs to be capable of independent work and seek comments from his advisor, Professor X. <laughs> you might think I'm crazy, but superheroes are being trained all around us. Look to your left. Should all be looking to your left now. <laughs> Look to your right. Look forward. Shake the person in front of you's hand. Come on, try it. <laughs> it's difficult, right? You're doing something like this or like... But most likely, if you were capable of that gesture, you just shook the hand of a superhero. Maybe the hand of a future leader of America. Maybe you shook the hand of a parent who paid for 16 years of Princeton tuition consecutively. That would be Carolyn Crabtree's parents. <laughs> or maybe you shook the hand of someone who consumed 21 beers in 42 minutes. A 21 club member. That's pretty super. <laughs> Some of you may not think you're a superhero just because you didn't drink a lot or don't have a future in public policy or can't possibly afford to put four children through college. Think about the money there. But there's still one superhero that we all can be. <laughs> Princeton man or woman with the power to fight for truth, justice, and keeping campus tours up campus where they belong. <laughs> and the leader of the Princeton superheroes, Shirley Tillman. <laughs> this mild-mannered molecular biologist has the power to shatter glass ceilings in a single bound, promote higher learning, and make it cool for women to work in the laboratory. It's pretty cool. Class of 2006, be on the lookout. Superhero scouts are here at graduation to see if you have what it takes. They've already been testing us. We had the endurance trial during baccalaureate. How long can you stand in one place wearing a gown and a hat and sweating before you want to die? <laughs> we had the singing trial. How well do you know mildly popular hits that were written when you were born? <laughs> and the final trial, that involves walking in an appropriate costume. You gotta walk through fans, Fitz Randolph Gate in your, in your gown. Why do you think you wear the gown? It's the closest thing we have in the real world to a cape. And now before I depart, please recite the superhero code of conduct with me. Ready for it? Yes, no, yes. I, Benjamin Fast. Very funny. Do solemnly swear. To uphold the honor code. 
to serve our nation and all nations, and to participate in annual giving. Generously. Thank you very much. Now I'd like to introduce David Brown, the Director of Student Volunteer Council, and Marjorie Young, the Director of the Community House, for the presentation of Priscilla, Priscilla Glickman Memorial Prize. Dear Class of 2006, you have astounded us in your capacity to commit yourself to community service. Hundreds and hundreds of you have done weekly projects tutoring in Princeton and Trenton, teaching SAT prep classes, playing music for the elderly, and preparing meals for guests in soup kitchens. Most recently, you responded to the overwhelming disasters in Southeast Asia and the Gulf Coast by raising funds, collecting books, and even going to the Gulf Coast to help in the cleanup and the reconstruction of that city. Your class has given over 70,000 hours of community service, both locally and abroad, in your time at Princeton. We are in awe and we are grateful. Thank you for your service. The Priscilla Glickman Class of 92 Memorial Prize is awarded annually to a senior or seniors in recognition of outstanding contributions in the area of community service. This year's recipients stood out for their work that they have done both here on campus and in the community. They are Sarah Colon and Laura Collins. From CA freshman participant to SVC executive board member, from scheduling all the vehicles going out to projects during the semesters as the cars are, to placing you in summer service internships, Sarah has continually worked to connect our campus, but it is her work volunteering off campus in, depending on the week, two to five different projects which earns her this prize. Tutoring, mentoring, building, teaching, Sarah has done it dependably, skillfully, with grace, humanity, humor, and without any fanfare, that is, until this moment. Congratulations, Sarah. For the past four years, Laura Collins has been an instrumental part of Community House. She joined Community House as a step-up coordinator, a tutoring program for middle school students. She quickly became the project coordinator. Laura, in addition to that, Laura was instrumental in driving the vans, recruiting staff, tutoring, and I think she probably has the record for recruiting most of her friends into this project. Laura also provided stellar leadership at, in the role as Community House Executive Board member. Recently, I heard Laura explain to someone, myself, <laughs> why she has and continues to be committed to service. 
And she said something like this. I have a compulsion to serve others, she said, because I know that all things are not equal. I have been given so much, I feel compelled to give back. Remember that? (laughs) Laura, on behalf of Community House, I want to thank you for your genuine commitment to reaching, teaching, and serving others with all the skills and the God-given talents that you've been given. Congratulations. And to the great class of 2006, as you leave and continue on your journey, please remember that you will always be in the nation's service and in the service of all nations, and that service is the rent you pay for living on this earth. Thank you. Our next student speech will be by Maggie Dillon. She's a a German major from Gross Point Farms, Michigan. Um, I have to begin by apologizing. I got a little carried away with the Bon Jovi last night, so I thought that this hoarse voice would make me sound really sexy, but I just feel like I'm going through puberty. Um, Now my voice matches my haircut, I guess I'm trying to say. I went there. I remember feeling relieved and then terrified when I realized that my parents had actually started the car and begun the 12-hour drive back to Detroit. I was realized, really, really, yeah, that just happened. Um, I was relieved because finally there was no one to tell me what to do, but I was terrified because there was no one to tell me how to do it. I was alone at college armed only with the conversation-starting crutches of, hi, where are you from? What's your name? Do you like the Dave Matthews Band? (laughs) BT Dubs, you totally remind me of Charlotte from Sex and the City. (laughs) OMG, you remember that one time on Saved by the Bell when Jesse got addicted to caffeine pills? LOL. (laughs) Yeah. I felt the same way upon entering Dylan Gym to meet my OA group. I was terrified because some guy was dressed like Braveheart. And I was relieved because finally someone was up in my face yelling at me to say my name, what animal I'd most like to be, and to jump, shake my booty. (laughs) I think that OA and CA exist for three reasons. To allow us to become accustomed to the fact that acronyms will structure and color our lives at Princeton. (laughs) To allow salmon a chance to force its way into our wardrobes in time for lawn parties. And to allow upperclassmen the chance to shellac the campus with signs telling us what to do with ourselves once we've gotten ticks in athlete's foot, or alternatively, save the world. Upon our return, it seemed like even the trees were covered with posters telling us to sing, dance, find a husband. (laughs) That definitely did not happen. There were posters telling us to row, congratulations on the national championship. telling us to play rugby or to join Sasa, Tasa, or Casa. And then even the lawns were covered with poster sales, giving us the chance to demonstrate our individuality with Monet's water lilies if we liked art, or Animal House if we were fun, or those vintage travel posters if we had been to Europe once on a high school trip. (laughs) I opted for the dark side of the moon poster that figured prominently in every movie I'd seen about college. As the seasons changed, so too did the posters. Already overprogrammed, we were now being told how to fill up what was left of our free time by going to see the people who had actually made it into all of those advertised groups. And then overnight, more posters descended upon us, 
urging us to support this candidate with a name conducive to punning, or that candidate whose poster tried a little too hard to look like an Abercrombie ad, or to support DJ Bob and the idea of 90s nostalgia. <laughs> Some posters told us that love equals love, or that food equals love, <laughs> or to drink the blood, whatever that means. As I look back on these four years of posters, it strikes me that for all the places they seem to be, like in the bathroom stalls, for example, there was one place they noticeably weren't, in the classroom. Back in elementary school, middle school, and high school, when you could go to Starbucks without getting a spelling lesson, or when you could go to the U store and buy a Princeton shirt in orange and black and not seafoam green and lavender, the walls of the halls of learning used to be adorned with posters of people with big hair and exaggerated gestures and simple messages about how to live our lives. Even if these classroom posters were the Kenny G of the wall art world, they still told us what to do and how to do it. A high school classroom poster I recently saw had the simple message of pay attention. <laughs> Below pay attention, the following pieces of advice were listed. Learn to focus and understand. Be especially attentive to parents, teachers, coaches, and employers. Listen, don't interrupt, make eye contact. The only eye contact I saw in that picture was between one student and his classmate's ass. As a discerning viewer and interpreter of signs, as we all must be in this era of pumas and pomo, I found the lack of consistency between word and image to be particularly unsettling. But I forgave that because the message at least was important, especially if I could mention it in the context of a speech that probably lost your attention after you realized I'm not nearly as attractive as I was last night. At the step sing. There are for sure a number of reasons, practical and otherwise, why our lecture halls and classrooms are not adorned with those posters of yesteryear. But imagine the inspiration you might glean in an otherwise stagnant Thursday 9 a.m. precept by a simple glance at a poster, an image of one's footprints extending into the desert, or an unusually fat and adorable hamster with that one simple, powerful word emblazoned below, dialectic. What I suspect we may come to find is that the next spaces we move in will be full of posters much like the inspiring, instructive classroom posters I just described. That company successories will make sure that the walls of our places of work are filled with pictures of eagles flying over misty mountaintops, challenging us, dare to soar, guys. <laughs> Urging us to walk the talk with some picture of penguins walking on a tropical beach in summer. If you're not riding the wave of change, another poster cautions, you'll find yourself beneath it. I wanted to make a joke about Kate Bosworth here, but if I did, she might never enroll. <laughs> or go out with me. <laughs> Successories actually sells a corporate impressions poster with a picture of two beautiful tigers in a field, baring their teeth, ripping the hell out of each other in a fight. The keyword below is competition. But what struck me as I was shotgunning Red Bulls and packing my digital suitcase is that the poster's suggestion that we live daringly, boldly, and fearlessly had a lot less to do with competition than it did with what it is that we learned here in these last four years. As those words, achievement, brilliance, competition, the stuff of high school valedictory addresses and mutual fund commercials, as they threaten to take over our mouse pads and our coffee cups, our paperweights, and probably even our shot glasses, my wish is that we remember what it is we learned in this place, a place that never showed us an image of a lighthouse and offered us simple answers. 
I know when I leave tomorrow, I'll go with a brand new set of conversations starting crutches about Aristotle, Adorno, and American Idol. Yeah. <laughs> and while I may not know exactly what I want to do with my life, I thank Princeton for teaching me how it is I should go about living it. Thank you. Now the Director of Athletics, Gary Walters, from the Class of 67, will present the Athletic Awards. Thank you, Lauren. Today we gather to celebrate the great class of 2006 and to honor the role the class of 2006 has played in preserving and advancing the great tradition that is Princeton Athletics. Among those contributions have been 38 Ivy League championships, including 13, the fourth highest total in a single year in league history during your senior year. Twenty-one of Princeton's 38 teams won at least one championship in four years, and 29 of 38 teams advanced to postseason championship competition. Of the 33 teams that compete in Ivy League sports, 11 won more than one league title, and seven, men's lacrosse, field hockey, women's lacrosse, softball, men's golf, women's swimming, and baseball, won three. The bottom line, Princeton won the Ivy League's All-Sports Points Championship each of your four years, running Princeton's active streak to 20 consecutive years. And of course, and with great pride, the class of 2006 participated in winning three national team championships in women's lacrosse, women's lightweight crew, and women's open crew an accomplishment that is further complemented by the fact that one of your classmates won four consecutive individual national championships in the sport of squash. I will now present our Senior Student Athlete Award winners from the class of 2006. These awards were announced on Thursday at the annual Princeton Varsity Club Senior Awards Banquet. Please hold your applause to the end, and I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version in the interest of time. The Class of 1916 Cup is presented to the Senior Varsity Letter winner with the highest academic standing at graduation. This year's winner is lightweight rower Michael Broach. A Woodrow Wilson School major who competes as a lightweight rower and achieved a cumulative grade point average of 3.94. Our next award is the C. Otto von Keenbush Award. 
The award is presented to those senior women of high scholastic rank who have demonstrated ability in athletics and the qualities of true sports women. This year, we have six winners. Emily Benke. An art major, Emily led her women's soccer team to the NCAA Final Four and was the Ivy League Player of the Year in 2006. Emily Benke. Jack Farrell. A history major in track and cross-country All-America, Cac is one of the greatest distance runners in Princeton's history, Cac Farrell. Jacqueline Leahy. A Woodrow Wilson School major and fencer, Jacqueline is a four-time All-America who compiled a 57-1 record in Ivy League matches, Jacqueline Leahy. Caroline Lind, an anthropology major, Caroline capped a brilliant rowing career by stroking the Princeton Open crew to the 2006 National Championship. Caroline Lind. Aaron Snyder, a sociology major, Aaron led her softball team to three Ivy League championships and was twice named Ivy League Pitcher of the Year, Aaron Snyder. And Lauren Vance, a politics major whose tenacious play on the lacrosse field earned her a first-team All-American selection as well as the 2006 Ivy League Co-Player of the Year honor, Lauren Vance. Our next award is the William Winston Roper Trophy. That goes annually to the Princeton senior, male of high scholastic rank, who has demonstrated the qualities of sportsmanship and general proficiency in athletics. This year's winner is Yasser El Halabi. A philosophy major, Yasser put together the greatest individual career in the history of collegiate men's squash, winning four individual national titles while also leading Princeton to two Ivy League championships. Yasser El Halabi. The final honor is the Art Lane Award. Named after one of Princeton, Princeton's athletic icons, Art Lane, class of 1934, and winner of the Pine Prize, who captained the undefeated football team to the national championship. The award is given to honor selfless contribution to sport and society. This year we have four winners. Devin Darby. Devin is an ecology and evolutionary biology major and a valuable member of the NCAA championship women's, women's open crew. A winner of the prestigious Spirit of Princeton Award, Devin was a tireless volunteer in serving health-related causes. Devin. Lauren Ehrlichman. 
an anthropology major and leader of the Ivy League championship field hockey team, Lauren has made significant contributions to helping those who are less fortunate. Lauren Ehrlichman. Weston Powell. A classics major and a member of the lightweight rowing team, Wes was a president of the Varsity Student Athletic Advisory Committee and was a leader in campus and community affairs. Weston Powell. And our final winner is Eric LaRue. A first-team All-Ivy goalie who majored in ecology and evolutionary biology, Eric was this year's winner of College Hockey's most prestigious citizenship award, the Hockey Humanitarian Award. Unfortunately, time does not allow me to list further Eric's stunning contributions in Kenya, Ecuador, and in the greater Princeton community. Eric is the very embodiment of the Lane Award. Eric LaRue. In closing, I want to thank each of the senior athletes for choosing Princeton, for sharing your talents with us, for representing the university well, and for contributing meaningfully to the tapestry of the undergraduate experience. Thank you very much. Happy trails and go Tigers. Thank you very much. I'd now like to ask Professor John Fleming, Professor John Gager, Mr. Charles Crank, and Mr. Bob Rogers to join us on stage for the induction of honorary class members. Our first honorary degree recipient is John Fleming. One of the most renowned professors during our class's time at Princeton, Professor Fleming has always been uniquely devoted to the students of this university. He has twice been College Master of Wilson, Department Chair, Academic Fellow, Academic Advisor, Faculty Advisor to the Honor Committee, and member of a myriad of other campus committees. He's long attracted students from various majors to his classes in the Humanities Department, and for years has penned an always engaging column in the Daily Princetonian. Professor Fleming is a Rhodes Scholar from Arkansas. Professor Fleming's outstanding commitment to the students of Princeton, his unflagging optimism and the competence of our generation is perhaps Professor Fleming's most remarkable quality. Indeed, Professor Fleming will be greatly missed, but long endeared. It is my honor to officially welcome him to the great class of 2006. Our next honorary degree recipient is Bob Rogers. Many 06ers have known Bob since our freshman year by his unrivaled enthusiasm for 0656 events. As a member of the great class of 56, Bob has tirelessly worked to strengthen the connection between 2006 and its grandparent class. This has been done through tailgates, panels, receptions, community service projects, and more. 
During our time at Princeton, Bob has also dedicated himself to being a friend and a mentor to many O6ers. Without his hard work, our class's experience at Princeton in connection with alumni would have dramatic, been dramatically different. I'm extremely excited to officially welcome him to the great class of 2006. Our next honorary degree recipient is John Gager. John Gager joined the Princeton faculty in 1968. His annual offering entitled The New Testament and Christian Origins is recognized as one of the most popular classes by generations of Princetonians. He was a master of Forbes College from 1992 to 2000, and he has given his time generously through the Outdoor Action Program, including leaving, leading several trips. He has also served as faculty advisor to the women's soccer team. He's been a teacher, mentor, and leader for hundreds of 06ers. And for this, we would like to make him an honorary member of the great class of 2006. Charlie Crank, as Assistant Director of Building and Grounds Maintenance, is behind the scenes of almost every event that happens outside this campus. He has been an, instrument, an instrumental part of our commencement planning from the very start. In addition, Charlie has helped out with our unions and outdoor concerts, though his only reward has always been knowing that we thoroughly enjoyed those events. Because of his tireless dedication and hard work to improving the lives of undergraduate students of Princeton University, the class of 2006 welcomes Charlie Crank as an honorary member. And please join me in giving all of our honorary members one last round of applause. We'd like to thank everyone one last time, parents, family, and friends, for coming to Class Day 2006. And most importantly, congratulations to the Class of 2006. Little housekeeping notes. Um, following the singing of Old Nassau, would you please vacate, uh, vacate Cannon Green as quick as possible? And then also the box lunches you can pick up for yourself and your guests at Alexander Beach and also the wristbands for tonight's prom, which will be very fun, um, can be obtained advanced under the Blair Arch. So, thank you. Thanks once again, and before we conclude today's event, I'd like to welcome six members of the class of 2006 who will lead in singing Old Nassau, so please rise and sing Old Nassau at this point. Rejoice in praise 
see you all at prom. Thank you.